Today I will be reading from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, good morning. We are going through just two sermons here, kind of a mini-series at the beginning of the year, because last week we identified this very common human problem where we don't have enough time, we don't have enough resources to do everything. So we are constantly, even as you, maybe some of you set New Year's resolutions, constantly having to choose to do certain things and to leave other things undone or to spend our money someplace and not everywhere and we have to make choices. And we were going to a simple text of Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount, like Jesus' most famous sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, to have this simple guideline. And Micah didn't read this verse this morning, but the verse is Matthew six thirty three, where Jesus says, hey, you're anxious about a lot of things. You are seeking after a lot of things. And out of all those things that you could be pursuing as your priority in life, he says this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. And so Jesus is setting a focus, a priority. We talked last week about some of these key terms. So I want to just quickly review that in case you missed or it's been a week. Um, but when he says seek first, we talked about how the word seek is not like trying to find something, like hide and go seek, but it's a focused and sustained pursuit. And he's talking about how the Gentiles, just people of the world, have a focused and sustained pursuit on material things. But he's saying instead of that, I want you to have a focused and sustained pursuit of the things of God, the rule of God in your life. And that's what the kingdom of God refers to, not, not land, not politics, but simply the rule of God on the throne of your heart being king as he actually is to set direction, to set priorities, to forgive and to lead you. Um, we talked about how it means to, to seek first. Something is first in time, but also first in priority. So we could think like he's saying pursue in a focused and sustained way, first and foremost. Not that it's wrong to pursue material things. Not, not that it's wrong to put food on your table and clothes on your back and to pay your mortgage and to have even nice things above and beyond what your basic necessities are. He's not condemning that. He's saying your top priority, what you do with your first hours of the day to set the tone for your day and the tone for your life is the pursuit of the rule of God in your heart. So this morning we come to this second key that he's saying not only are you pursuing the kingdom of God, but you're also pursuing the righteousness of God. And kind of under two big headings, I want to ask a couple questions. Like, what is this righteousness of God that he's talking about? If we're going to pursue something, we need to know what it is that we're pursuing. What does that look like so I know when I've found it and I can follow after it? 
And then we're also going to ask then, like practically, how do we practice the seeking of that righteousness? So when you leave church this morning and when you go back to work or to school tomorrow, how are you going to practice the seeking of God's righteousness? Those are kind of our big umbrella. So first question, what is this righteousness that God tells us to seek? And it's always good to kind of begin with defining our terms. Like if we have a debate or we want to have a, a aligned understanding of something, it's just good to say, okay, here's a key term. Here's what it means. So when Jesus uses this word righteousness, diakasune in the Greek New Testament, a very simple idea of what that means is just aligning your life to do what God requires. I'll say this a couple different ways. Doing what God requires. Um, following after God's character and God's commands or conforming your life to God's standards. Okay. Now, a question immediately comes up of like, how would we know what God's standards are? And the answer is because God was gracious enough to reveal himself and to reveal his expectations in this book that many of you either hold it in your hands or you're looking on an app that refers to it or that quotes it called the Bible or the Word of God. So what is this righteousness that Jesus tells us to seek? I'm going to say two things about this. The, the first thing is God's standard of righteousness. The righteousness that we're seeking is God's standard of righteousness as it's contained in the Bible. So God graciously is saying, like, I'm not leaving you to guess. Like, these, these gods of the pagans and the ancients are always, you know, they're, they're whimsical and they're capricious. And it's like, well, how are we supposed to know that this god or goddess had this expectation of us? Because they never told us. Well, God, the true God, Yahweh, is the opposite where he writes to his people and he sends prophets to his people to communicate, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I don't want you to do. Here's how you pursue loving me. Here's how you love your neighbor. And he clarifies something. So what, what Micah read this morning was this section in Matthew 5, a few verses earlier, just backing up, where he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. And that's like capital L law, like the Torah the books of Moses, like what I gave him on Mount Sinai, he's like, don't accuse me of abolishing that and saying, well, we're in a new era. The law doesn't matter anymore. I just want you to love everyone. And no, he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And he's referring to both the smallest letter of their alphabet and the smallest kind of diacritical mark of how you would mark a letter to know how to pronounce it. Like other languages besides English have those and many of you are familiar with those. He's like the smallest letter and the smallest diacritical marks are not going to pass away until all of it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I feel like, well, we live in the midst of a Christian culture even that relaxes what we think are the least of God's commands or the ones that we just, culture doesn't believe that anymore. And we teach other people to do the same. Well, Jesus is referring to that. He's saying, as, as God has set a standard for you to conform your life to, don't relax the law. Don't say, hey, don't worry about that. You don't have to do that. Nobody believes that anymore. But by the same token, Church and Christian community should not be a place or a group of people that are adding to what God says. 
we should not be a community of people that say, well, kind of like the word of God wasn't clear on some things. And so we kind of have our own additional rules for your life if you want to belong here. Really a goal, and I was talking about this with someone this week, a goal of, of any Christian or Christian church or Christian ministry should be like, we don't want to be more narrow and constrictive on your life than what the word of God is. We also don't want to be wider and permissive of things that are not honoring to God according to what he says in his word. Kind of our attitude is like, well, God says it. There are many things in scripture that I don't understand. My initial impulse is not even to agree with some of those things as, as you wrestle with similar dynamic. But to be able to say, that's what God's word says. That's God's definition of righteousness. So I want to try to do that. And I brought an illustration for you that kind of like as the Hebrew ancients and then the Greeks thought about this, they thought of a rule or a standard as kind of a fixed guide. So this is, this is a level. I've got, you know, some of my little tools up here. You've got like a speed square for construction. You've got a tape measure. You've got a level. And so the idea of this, Jesus is communicating to us something like this, that he's like, as you seek God's righteousness, God has a fixed standard. And we should be able to take that standard over and over again. And we're wise to do this. Jesus encourages us to do this, of like holding this standard up to our life and saying, not, oh man, I got a bad level. I need to chuck this level and get a different one. But saying, I'm out of level. There, there's something in my life that doesn't measure up. Okay, that's, that's the picture of what he's saying. And, you know, this, we do this different ways. So a speed square, you know, they use lasers to cut these things. So this at least theoretically, is an exact 90-degree angle, which is really important. Like the higher you build a building, the more important it is that you get it right. So you know, if you're building a one-story ranch and you're off by a quarter inch every foot of construction, you're like, nah, no big deal. But you know, if you build a 1,200-foot tall office building or condominium tower, if you're off a quarter inch every foot, you know how far you're off at the top of that building? 25 feet. Okay? You don't want a building that's 25 feet out of level. And I, I think actually that illustration of a level, a square, the, the correct measurements where we're like, we have established the fact that, that that is an inch and that is a foot. Or if you're using the metric system, like that is a meter. And that's so important because, you know, as we look at our own lives, just like in the world of construction, you know, some of you can step back, like you, you go to a friend's house and you probably don't tell them this, but you, you see the, the pictures on their wall and they've got kids that are, you know, like our kids throwing footballs in the house and shooting hockey pucks in the house. And you can stand back at some pictures and they're so far out of level, everyone can see that. There's a problem. The danger is sometimes it's almost worse if you're only a degree or two out of level because you don't notice. You know, morally, ethically speaking, sometimes if you're just, and I'm not encouraging you to do this, but if you're just sending your brains out, you know you're wrong. You know you're living in rebellion to God's word instead of living in conformity to God's word, which is righteousness. But sometimes when you just, you've just tweaked a few little things and you're like, no big deal, and the reality is your life isn't level, your life isn't square, your life isn't righteous, but you're, you're so close, it doesn't feel dangerous. And it is, okay? Um, another illustration I could use of, of 
God's righteousness being his standard that we conform to is like all our traffic laws. You think of all the traffic laws that we have, you know, stop signs and stop lights and yields and, you know, and moving across town. We're now in a neighborhood that has all these roundabouts, you know, and, and like figuring out which lane should I be in in this roundabout? And when there's ice and snow on the ground, it gets really tricky because you can't see where the arrows are pointing. You kind of have to learn what those are there for and speed limits and all these things. And like, I, I generally don't think that those speed limits and those signs and those stoplights are there just because someone with lots and lots of power is like maniacally laughing in an office somewhere about how they can control your life. I mean, I actually think most of the time how, like, when that traffic goes and I know to stop and then it's my turn and I'm trusting that these other people stop, you realize, like, stop or slow down or turn here. These laws, these limits were placed on your life for your life and health and safety, for your good, but also for the common good. And I want us to think of God like that, that, that our culture today looks at a lot of parts of the Bible and just thinks, man, these are, these are capricious rules. This is just completely arbitrary. And instead, God's heart is like, no, there's nothing in here that's arbitrary. There's nothing in here that's like just because I'm God and I want to freak you out and control you in some sadistic way. No, God is like, I know the reality of the world I created, and I want to give you rules, principles, standards to live by that conform to reality so that you are flourishing, so that you have life and health, and so that there is a common good. That's the heart of our God. So a specific example would be like our culture today, and I mean like a Western, progressive, kind of very postmodern culture would look at certain parts of the Bible, like it's what it says about sex and sexuality, for example, what it says about money and material things. And we would think, like, that is irrational, that's unreasonable, that's just plain stupid. Like, why does God care who I sleep with and what I do with my money? And people ask me that from time to time. Like, what, if there's really a God, like, why does he care about stuff like this? And we think there is no reason, there is no good reason. And if you step back, and especially, like, if you're, a, like, a counselor or a therapist, and you're talking to people who have, like, just run right through God's stop signs and stoplights. And they, they did it a bunch of times. They probably didn't get in a big accident the first time, so to speak. But eventually they are. And they realize the very things that I charged ahead and did were dehumanizing. Like lust is incredibly dehumanizing. To, to treat another human being made in the image of God as just an object for your unfulfilled appetites is dehumanizing. To treat money as if it's just like the greatest thing in the world and just accumulating stuff is what your life is all about is dehumanizing. And Jesus is actually rehumanizing us by reminding us that like one of the primary things that you could do with your life is to seek first and foremost the righteous standards of God. I want us to just get a different perspective because I know anytime we talk about rules, certain you know, people are like, man, I still like the church is about rules, and we, you know, Jesus is like the president of the No Fun Club, and he's just like, don't do this and don't do this, and you can't do this stuff, and everybody else is doing this, but you can't do that. You got to do this stuff instead. And the reality is, God gives us rules, God gives us these standards because he loves us and because he wants to see us flourishing. 
And the moment that trips in your head and then trips in your heart where you believe it and you trust the heart of God to have standards for your life that if you followed them would actually be life-giving, you're on, your, tra- you're, you're on your, your path to being wise and really living to try to measure up to God's standards. Let me take this sidetrack with you for a few moments, and I want to just say a couple of the things. In Scripture, there's this thing we do where we compare Scriptures to Scriptures and part of, like, let the Bible be its own commentary kind of thing. So when we're talking about what is the righteousness of God that Jesus is telling us to pursue, one of the things that I did this week was to actually look at this sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and say, like, how else is Jesus using the concept of righteousness, like, in this sermon taught at the same time? Because that might shed some light on what it looks like to follow the righteous standards of God, okay? So first of all, right at the beginning of the sermon, you have this section of verses. It's like Jesus went up on this mountain. He's down by the sea, whatever, and all these disciples, all these crowds are gathering around him, and he begins to teach them, saying, and it's blessed are the so-and-sos, and blessed are the so-and-sos, and blessed are the so-and-sos, and it's this section called the Beatitudes of like, what is the type of person that God blesses? And the word blessing means like, lavishing his grace, lavishing his kindness. And it means literally happy. Like happy are the people who live this way. And in in verse six, the first time he uses the concept of righteousness in this same sermon, he says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. And I think that's so interesting. And so even in Jesus' day, so countercultural. Because culture is sitting here thinking whether it's a very religious culture with their own rules or a very libertine culture of just like, I don't like rules, I don't like standards. We have this idea of like, man, the more you gotta, the more you gotta conform to someone else's standard, and they're sitting there, like, and you picture God just like always like measuring, always measuring everything, like, right? And he's like, you're, you're out of whack your whole life. Once again, you're out of whack. Your thinking's out of whack, your desiring's out of whack, your actions are out of whack, your words, it's all a mess, okay? You're all, and we're like, man, what a miserable life to have a God like that. But what I hear Jesus saying is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, like you have an appetite for the things of God, the standards of God, the character of God. And what does he say? Are these going to be the most bent out of shape, uptight, frustrated, dissatisfied people in the world? Jesus says no. He says, first of all, happy, blessed are those You'll be happy by conforming your life to the standards of God. And he says, and you'll be satisfied. As people are hungering and thirsting after so many different things, and you look at our culture wherever you go, and people are hungry for something. And we're trying to fill that void with all kinds of things to satisfy. And Jesus is like, do you know where that satisfaction is found? At least in part is by having an appetite for like, yeah, the standards of God that make you healthy, that lead to flourishing and satisfaction. So that's, that's already counter, countercultural. Now, now he goes, like, just bonkers with this because the next time he uses the word righteousness is 5 verse 20. And this is where people in his audience would have been like, I, wait, what? This is what he says. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that sounds like unless you're smarter than Ken Jennings, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're faster than Usain Bolt, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Because they're like, wait, the scribes and the Pharisees, those are the guys that like sit around studying the law. They know every little tidbit of it. They have extra rules around the rules. You know, this term like they build a fence around the law or a hedge around the law. And they're like, to, to keep me from touching that that I shouldn't touch, I'm going to build a fence all the way back here. And I'm not even going to come, come anywhere near that. And so Jesus' audience is hearing this and like, wait, how can we possibly exceed the righteousness of the religious experts who are good at being good? And we're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's just like, we might as well give up because there's, how do you outperform people like that? And Jesus goes on here in Matthew 5, if you're turned there to give you a clue about what he means, unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus starts this whole series of statements where he says something like this. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. The, you've heard it said, he goes back to the Torah. He goes back to the Ten Commandments. And he's like, you've heard it said, like, don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't just divorce your spouse. Don't bear false witness. And he's going through this list of rules that are like, yeah, everybody's heard that. But here's what's interesting. When he says, but I say to you, it's not, oh, you've heard, don't kill, but I say to you, there are some incredibly obnoxious people that we need to get rid of. <laughs> you've heard said, like, don't commit adultery, but I mean, come on, like one on the side. In other words, we think maybe what he's going to do, and this is what he's accused of, is relaxing the law. You've heard it said. And he's like, but no big deal. It's about love. And what Jesus actually says, what Jesus actually does is in every instance, he says, okay, you've heard it said, don't kill, but I say to you, and he elevates the standard, but what he also does is he internalizes the standard. Elevates and internalizes. So he, he does stuff like this. He's like, not only should you not kill someone, you shouldn't hate them in your heart. Not only should you not commit adultery with your body, you shouldn't commit adultery with your imagination. Not only should you not retaliate against people who have wronged you, but you ought to actually try to bless them. And again, elevating and internalizing. He's saying, here's a, here's a key with the righteousness that Jesus requires. Your heart matters. Okay, he's not just like, do these things, don't do these things, we'll be good. Over and over, what Jesus is saying is, your heart matters. This is how your righteousness can exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are externalists. They're professionals at looking good to other people. I mean, so much so that Jesus calls them elsewhere, like you are whitewashed tombs. Your inner person is filled with filth and decay and rottenness and death, but you paint the outside so other people think that you're doing awesome. Your heart matters to Jesus. And then one more mention of righteousness in the sermon sounds like this, chapter 6, verse 1. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And the issue here is something that I'll call performance righteousness, like externalism. And he goes right back to using the scribes and the Pharisees as an example. He's like, okay, everybody thinks the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jewish people, they're so good at being good. He's like, but, but actually watch them. And what are they doing? He's like, they're, they're going in the public places and they're praying very loudly for you to hear their prayers. But Jesus is kind of like, they have no private life, no, no private prayer life. They're not dependent on me. They pray in the public places because they want you to think well of them. 
they tithe in the public places, like, you know, dropping the coins from the highest height so everyone hears them hit the bottom of the giving box. And people are like, what, what was that? Oh, it's Rabbi so-and-so. He is so generous. He's like, and they can't serve the poor without drawing attention, like blowing trumpets. And like, he's exaggerating. I don't think they're carrying around trumpets. And like, do here's my giving to the poor song. But he's like, they, they have to draw attention to what they're doing before they do the good thing. And so again, what, what Jesus is saying is like, it's not just what you do that matters. It's why you do it. Your motives matter to God. Why do you want to practice righteousness? And, and it can be so easy in a Christian community to want to practice righteousness or to want to do good things or to be, want to be perceived a certain way, not really because your heart is committed to Christ and you want to glorify him and draw people's attention to him, but because you want people to think well of you. Man, those people are so generous with their time and money or, you know, whatever the thing is. Um, and, and notice what Jesus says here. He's like, it's, it's fine. Like, if, if you live for the praise of people, Jesus is kind of like, I hope you enjoy it because that's all you're getting is their praise. And kind of the, the punchline I see of what Jesus is saying about righteousness in this entire sermon is that God's righteous standard is both a what and a how or why. It's both. He's not just saying, do these things. I don't care how you feel about it. I don't care your motives. He's like, your motives matter. And, and here's a key. God is not just after your compliance. He's after your heart. He's not walking around the house of your life with his, with his level and his square and being like, just, just comply. I don't, I don't care. I don't care why. Just like I feel the need to get you in line, get you square. That's, that's not the heart of our God. The heart of our God is I want your heart. I want your heart to be whole, not divided. I want your heart to be sincere, not hypocritical. I want your heart to be this inside-out gospel transformation, not this outside-in thing like the Pharisees of just plaster a sticker on the outside and proclaim what you're loyal to and then it not be true. So that's his first big point and by far the longest point of the sermon, that in the standard way that God uses this idea of his righteousness, it is God's standard of righteousness. But this is very important. Secondly, what is God's righteousness? It's not only his standard of righteousness, it is also his gift of righteousness. Okay, if all we needed was more rules to conform our lives to, then around the first century, what God could have done is just send another prophet and be like, okay, Elijah and Elisha, those really old guys, some fuzzy stuff happened back there, right? Confusing. It confuses me too, okay? Uh, we get to Isaiah, Jeremiah, a little bit more clear than some of the minor prophets did kind of the weird stuff like lying on their one side for a very long time and then rolling over and lying on their other side and what's that about? So, okay, let's just, let's just clarify. God's standards are X, Y, Z. Do you get it? And we'd be like, yeah, we get it. Now we can live moral lives. God could have done that if our problem was simply a lack of information what he does instead, and we just got through celebrating this, is he, he comes. He himself comes as the Messiah and as the Savior because he realizes your biggest problem is not a lack of information. It's that you're, you're sinners. You're not conformed to my rule, and you're never going to get there on your own. 
okay? And this is where Christianity differs from every other religion that we've ever come up with because we didn't come up with it, okay? And if you're, if you're new to the faith or you're here just exploring, like, what do these people believe or what do I believe? This is it, okay? Like, yes, there are moral laws in Scripture that tell you how to live. And yes, there are consequences, like just natural consequences for not living the way that God tells us to. And he is a righteous judge. And so he is measuring our lives and saying, okay, none of us measure up. That's bad news. But the good news is that in the midst of none of us measuring up, God sends his son Jesus into the world and Jesus lives his life. And at every moment and every turn and every reaction and every decision, Jesus is doing righteousness. And so time and time again, to just to keep picturing the same thing, the father could hold up that perfect standard to Jesus' life and say, man, every single time, the bubble's right in the middle, Jesus. And then Jesus, in spite of living the only righteous and perfect life, goes to a cross and dies. And he says, because I want to pay for your sins. I want to take your consequences for not measuring up on myself to give you the free gift of my righteousness. And this is like going outside of this text for a moment. This is Romans 1. You know where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And he says this, for in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, the just shall live by faith or the righteous shall live by faith. And you think about that, he's saying in the gospel, in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is he talking about? Well, I, I don't think he's talking so much about the standard of righteousness, what we just got done talking about for 15 minutes. Because that's, that's not really good news because none of us measured up. What he's talking about first and foremost is this gift of righteousness. He's like, in the gospel, that gift of God's righteousness is revealed. And that's why he says, the righteous will live by faith. This is not a new concept like the Old Testament God was like this angry, vindictive, judgmental God who's always walking around with his square and his level and his tape measure being like, you fail, you fail, you fail, you fail, you're all rotten. Let's have a flood, wipe you all out, start over. Let's wipe you all out, start over. Let's wipe you all out, start over. Um, do you know the very beginning of the covenant people, the Hebrews, became the Israelites, became the Jews? Who, who's the first one of those people? Father Abraham, listen to this balance all the way back. The first guy in the story of the covenant people, Father Abraham. Genesis 18, 19, God says, I have chosen him. So I've chosen him by free grace. Abram was a pagan living in a foreign land. But he says, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Okay, what kind of righteousness is that? The standard or the gift? That's the standard. I've chosen him that he may care about my standard and teach his kids and his grandkids to care about my standard that brings life and health and flourishing. But before he said that, three chapters earlier, Genesis 15, verse 6, says, God calls him, and Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. 
God counted his faith as righteousness. Abraham knowing, like, I, I'm, I'm going to try to measure up, but I can't. But I trust you, God. I follow you in faith. I lay down my own standards of the way to do things, and I'm just going on faith that you're God and that you're good. And it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the gift at the very beginning of the story. There's always been this interplay of the standard of God's righteousness and the gift of God's righteousness. And by the way, let me say this before I go to the last point of just like, how do you practice this? If you seek the standard without the gift, and that's the Pharisees, that's the lawyers and the scribes and the Sadducees, that's the religious leaders of Jesus' day. If you seek the standard without the gift, that's called moralism. It's called Phariseeism. It's called externalism. It's like we, we care so much about the standard, the standard, the standard, the rule and the principles. And like we're, we're going to go. And the Pharisees are great about walking around to everyone else. And they're like, nope, you don't measure up. You're a failure. Loser, 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 out. Nope, no, no good. Uh, then they like, they put it on the outside and they're like, check this out. Awesome, right? <laughs> well, it wasn't awesome because... There was no balance of the gift. I mean, the Messiah is right there saying, I have the gift. Do you want the gift? And they're all like, no, because we got the standard. The flip side of that is if you embrace the gift without the standard, that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Like, I love God enough for him to be my savior, but I don't love him enough to be my Lord. Like, like sure, I know I messed up, so you can fix me, you can take me to heaven when I die, but I, I don't trust you enough, I don't love you enough to like actually change the way I live tomorrow. I'm reading through this book right now that kind of differentiates between these two things. Christopher Watkin used these terms I was kind of unfamiliar with. He uses the terms the N curve and the U curve. You're gonna talk about this in small groups, so pay attention for like one minute, okay? Um, he says, religion and people use righteousness on an N curve. So, you know, picture a lowercase n, and it starts at the bottom. It starts with us. And we're using our righteousness, and we're, we're putting it to God. We're like, see, see me obey. See me not do those bad things that those other people are doing. And see, I'm like, I'm in church this morning, and I, I read my Bible like three out of seven days this week. So that's pr pretty good. And and what are we doing? We're, we're, we're starting here with our righteousness kind of launched at God as these missiles of manipulation. Like, you should do this for me because look at what I'm doing. I'm, I'm obeying you. So we're expecting the end curve then. Then God returns our righteousness in the form of blessing. And you, you see something like this. Like, you see it. You probably see it in your own life. If you don't, like, here's a really old story in the Bible of, like, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Like, they're... They're like, okay, let's build two altars and we'll call down fire and whatever God answers, that's the true God. So Israel should be serving either Baal, the true God, or Yahweh. And what are the prophets of Baal doing? They're, they're dancing around. They're cutting themselves and they're praying and they're gnashing their teeth. And they're like, look how sincere we are. And they're launching that manipulation missile. Like, Baal, you should do something for us. Like, send down the fire and complete the end curve. And Elijah's just like, God... You're the true God, and, and we don't fear you. Like, would you please show up for the glory of your own great name? And God's like, you know, consumes everything. 
Um, that's the N curve, using my righteousness externally to get something from God. The U curve is like, like Abraham, God, I didn't start, you started. You started with me and you came down with blessing and hope and forgiveness that I didn't earn and cannot earn. And now I'm here receiving your gift and wanting to send righteousness back to you but now it's in response to what you've done. It's because you've graciously transformed my life and because you've given me the strength to obey you. And it's because I love you. And, and you see the difference between the two curves? We want to live like the U curve of God, you initiated this righteousness as a gift. Now I return righteousness as the standard, but because you've changed me, because you're so kind. All right, I'm closing with this, and this will go quick. I just want to say, just real practical before you're sent out of here with, like, this head stuff of, like, okay, righteousness is a standard, it's a gift. How do we practice seeking this righteousness? Just a few things I want to give you practically. Um, number one, I think it's incredibly important and incredibly helpful to identify the alternate standards we're actually living by. Okay? We all do. And I'm not saying it's... Cognitive. I'm not saying you're reasoning through it and saying, I'm setting aside God's law and I'm embracing a different law. But every time we simply just lower the standard and be like, well, I, I don't want to do that or I can't do that. Anytime we add rules, again, just by default. Anytime we give our allegiance to a, a political party, and if you don't know, we have two major ones in America and they're both an utter disaster, Okay in different ways, and in similar ways because they're broken people. It, it, like the non-cynical side of me says even like broken people trying to do the best they can with the tools that they have apart from Jesus to solve real problems. But, but they fall short. My point is if, if your allegiance is to a party, to a social group, to a tribe, and you're letting them just kind of by default set what your standards of righteousness and unrighteousness are, you will find yourself in any political situation differing from the actual standards of God. Or I think what we often do by default is just simply this autonomy that I talked about last week. We just make up our own rules. And we, again, it's not this deliberate process of I'm setting this thing of God aside, but it's also something that we all do. It's something that I do and have to confess is sin. Jesus, I'm living by an alternate standard right now. I'm just doing what I want to do. I'm doing what I think will satisfy me right now. Here's the danger of, and, and why we need to identify where we have alternate rules. Because imagine if you're building a house and your, your level itself is not true. In other words, your, your actual level is out of level. And you're like eyeballing stuff and you're actually getting it closer than when you hold the level up and you're adjusting it and your wall looks like that. And you're like, let's, the bubble's right in the middle, so I guess that's level. Or your square is like an 85-degree square, and you're like, I don't know, I guess. Or a 20-degree square, and you think it's 90. I mean, again, like the farther off it is, the more you eyeball it, and you're like, there's something off. When we take a standard other than the standard of God, and we're like, that's what I'm going to build my life on. That's what feels good. That's right. It's right because I say it's right, and I got a whole tribe of people that tell me I'm right you're going to start to find out, like, I'm in the middle of building this life and uh, time to put in the windows. 
manufactured off-site, and these windows don't fit in these openings. And I'm laying tile, and the tile's kind of like this, and just kind of doesn't fit. And uh, does it feel like to anybody else this floor is leaning, and I'm kind of walking downhill to the bathroom? And, um, and, and the higher you go and the longer you build your life off, you are, you are mounting a destruction that's coming. It's getting closer and closer, and it's getting worse and worse. It's important to identify where I have a standard in my life. You have a standard in your life. We're like, this is right. And like just it doesn't correspond to reality. And again, if you, if you hear something this morning, it's that God's standards of righteousness conform to reality. They conform to the world that we actually live in. So identify where you're not building your house square and healthy. You're not going to flourish. Secondly, identify what makes you feel self-righteous. And when I use that term, we, we have this traditional way of thinking of self-righteousness, like the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Like, they were self-righteous. And we get that. They were. And there are a lot of people like them today that they're, it's the moralistic kind of self-righteousness of, like, I look down my nose at other people and I'm, I, I'm morally better than you. I make better choices than you. But very often, the, the very people who think, like, that's who is self-righteous are committing a different kind of self-righteousness. And I'll just run through a list with you, Okay. Anybody, dietary righteousness, like, oh, I'm, I'm veggie, I'm vegan, uh, I do all the supplements, or like, I'm, I'm carnivore, I'm a teetotaler, and it's like, we, we can do dietary righteousness. What, the question I'm asking is, what causes you, what, what standards in your life cause you to feel superior to other people? My diet, my health, health righteousness. Like, oh, I, I take care of my body. My body is a temple. It's like, well, it is, but, but so is yours, okay? Um, so it's great that you get in the gym, but it, health righteousness, organizational or neatness righteousness of like, oh, I don't know how you live that way. I kind of have to have my stuff like put together, but you know, you do you, right? And uh, we, go, we go through all like work ethic righteousness of just like, man, I get stuff done. How did these other people live? I, we got, I'm not commending laziness. That's a sin. But you ever feel like a work ethic righteousness of like, I'm, I'm the kind of person who just gets stuff done. I, I, like, this thing was struggling until I entered the picture. And then we've got like the traditional righteousness and we got the progressive self-righteousness of like, I'm hanging on to the past because it was morally superior in every way. And then the progressive righteousness of like, well, at least I'm not on the wrong side of history. And we're just doing this all over the place of like, this what lets me feel superior to other people. Then you come to church and you encounter the people with like Sabbath righteousness of like, oh, what's your family's Sabbath practices? Oh, this is what we do. And it's like, God commands Sabbath, like take a rest. But really, like you've turned like a gift of God to take a break and to stop being so productive because God doesn't need your productivity and you've turned it into a form of your own righteousness or like the liturgical calendar righteousness of like, oh, I grew up in a church that just like didn't do Advent and didn't do Lent, but now we know better. I love the liturgical calendar. I love these rhythms to every year and being part of something way bigger than ourselves. But is this a source of our righteousness that makes us superior to other people? Lifestyle righteousness. Oh, you spend your money, I save my money. Oh, you buy stuff, I do experiences. I mean, we could go on and on. 
we could go on and on. But it's, again, so healthy that we say, like, where am I doing this? Where instead of seeking first the righteousness of God, I have defined righteousness and superiority to other people in all these other terms. And I'm a really unhealthy person. And I want to lay that down this morning. Okay, now let's go positive. So identify alternate standards. Identify what makes you feel self-righteous. Submit to God's standards of right and wrong. Just submit to God's standards of right and wrong that are contained in his word. And I'll tell you, I'll share with you a dirty little secret. This will always be most challenging where you find yourself disagreeing with the Bible. And if you're a traditional, like if you're one of those self-righteous kind of traditional people, you may find yourself disagreeing with some of the words of Jesus when he talks about things like compassion and grace and um, like, like giving to people who are poor and you're sitting back like, well, the reason you're poor is because you've made bad choices and I have not. And uh, was it Jonathan Edwards? Jonathan Edwards, like a Puritan, wrote this whole list of like, I don't have to give to the poor if this is why they're poor. And he basically said, ta-da, I got myself off the hook of ever giving to the poor. Because there's always reasons that get me off the hook. And he, he wasn't sincere. He was just saying, if this is my heart to get myself off the hook and to say, God is a traditional Puritan I struggle with, then you'll always struggle. And again, you could be on a very progressive side and you're like, I don't struggle with compassion or generosity. Um, like I struggle, and I said this earlier, I struggle with some of the things the Bible says about sexuality and marriage and money. And like, I, I just don't understand why God cares about certain things. But I'm, what I'm saying is like, we're all affected by the same thing, which is it's hardest to submit to God when you find it's a rub for you. And that's not gonna be the same for everyone in this room. And I, I venture to say, if you travel halfway around the world to a different type of culture, the things that are the rub for them are very different than what's the rub for Denver. But what we're doing is just saying, God, this is your word. This is your standard. I, I just want to trust you. I want to submit. And then finally, strive to please God in actions from the heart. And both of those things are important. Righteousness is not a theory. It's not a concept. It's not a good intention. The Bible over and over again says, do righteousness. Do righteousness. Actively practice righteousness, but from the heart. How do you know if you're seeking righteousness from the heart? You ask yourself things like this. Why am I doing the good that I'm doing? Is it about recognition? Is it about the praise of men? Or is it really for the glory of God? Will I choose to obey even when no one's watching? You know, if there's this discrepancy between who you are when people are watching and who you are when no one's watching, there's a big gap between your character and your reputation, in other words. That's not righteousness. And that's a clue. That's a dashboard warning light that, like, you're doing righteousness for the wrong reason. Is your obedience sprinkled with a heavy dose of repentance and trust in Jesus' perfect obedience for you? Are you like, God, I really want to obey you from the heart and I fail to do that and I repent. I confess. At my best, I am broken, but I sure am going to keep trying to please you because I want to please you from the heart. Everything went wrong in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve didn't do Matthew 6.33. 
I know they didn't have it, okay? That's thousands of years later. But just think about it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Adam and Eve are sitting there in the garden, and they're like, nope, we want to, we have this walking personal relationship with God. He loves us. He's entrusted all this to us. Everything is good. And they're like, but we, we at least for a moment and for a decision, want to sit on the throne. We want to eat from which tree? The, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We want to set the standard ourselves. And it all went south. I'm just saying, if you're here this morning and you're like, what if I don't desire what you're talking about? I think there's, there's the warning. In the Garden of Eden, they didn't do Matthew 6.33. It's that simple. And everything went wrong. But here comes Jesus saying, yes, do Matthew 6.33 in faith because I am God and because I am good. And I will cause you to experience deep soul satisfaction. I will fill you with joy as you seek to conform your life to the standard of Jesus. And even where you fail, you're like, it's not my righteousness anyway. It's his that I receive by faith. So seek first the righteousness of God.